1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. So this is the season of Advent. What does that mean? What does Advent mean? Coming. Coming or, or arrival. It refers to the first coming of Christ or the arrival of Christ and also to the second coming of Christ. So that's what we're remembering and looking forward to and celebrating both in this season, which we fittingly celebrate every year. Advent is a time when we celebrate the waiting for Christ to come into the world and in which we wait for his second coming. So what was it like to be a Christian before Christ was born? What was that like? We kind of know what it's like looking back or being in the age of Christ being here by his spirit. So what was that like? What do you think? Hope? Anticipation? Yeah. Longing. A lot of longing. What else? Despair. Hope, longing, anticipation, despair. What else? Mystery. Mystery. Yeah. Any others? Hmm. Hoping, longing to see what the prophets foretold. If you had lived then, you would have struggled with things like doubt, despair, uh, a sense of, I've been defeated, you would have been tempted with things like retreating, spiritually retreating and retreating from the world, right? From involvement in the world because the garden, the paradise of God was lost and now it's all broken and it's not getting better. You would have had promises given by the prophets, but you wouldn't have seen their realization yet. Saints who knew God felt that he was holy, awesome, uh, fearsome, yet gentle, tender, forgiving, and near, but probably not near enough. When confronted with his own sin, Job said, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. This longing and anticipation, temptation to doubt and despair, and sensing that things have gone so wrong they can't be fixed would have been daily struggles for many saints. The sense that God was 
wonderful, yet not near enough. And if he were, were near enough, that might very well be a problem. And no one knew that better than Moses and his brother Aaron the priest. Moses meditated long on both the distance between him and God and on God's nearness. Who learned the lesson of God's unapproachability better than Moses and his brother Aaron the priest? Aaron knew all too well that if he approached God's presence in an unworthy manner, fire would come out from the Lord and consume him. And he saw that in his own family. Yet, Aaron was invited into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Moses was invited into the tent of meeting to meet with God and talk to him as a man speaks with his friend. So God came all the way down from his awesome throne in heaven. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about God's throne and the, the appearances of Christ before the incarnation? There was one passage we discussed where we talked about fire issuing forth from before his throne. And another in Revelation where it says that lightning shoots out from his throne. Like, how close have you ever been to lightning? You know, you, most of us know lightning as like, kind of a thundering, rolling rumble, right? But once in a while, if the storm passes right overhead, it sounds like, but much, much louder and scarier, and it shakes your lungs. And so, so that's what it's like to be near God. That's a visual representation of what Moses and Aaron knew um, awesomely and terribly, what it was like to be near God. So there was a great dilemma there. So God came all the way down from his awesome throne in heaven to talk with Moses and Aaron in a little tent. Moses and Aaron felt the nearness of God in wonder and fear and in comfort. They were mediators between God and the rest of the people of God. But what about the rest of the people? They were constantly suffering the pain of being near God without having had their sins taken away. Fire, the earth swallowing them up, plagues, poisonous snakes. Now think about being a saint waiting for the advent of Christ the first time. Think about reading these passages and thinking, wow, if God were near me, I would be burned up too. And then think about being a saint after David's time who wrote in the psalm, but as for me, it is good to be near God. What would you have been thinking? Like, you know, how about something like, um, yes, David, that's what we all want, but maybe if God somehow absolved us of, our, of all our sins once and for all, sanctified us by some kind of ultimate substitutionary sacrifice, and took away the dividing wall between us and God, I mean, come on, David, God is too holy for us to approach. Who can enter his temple and live? That was the dilemma faced by saints before Christ. And I think it is the same dilemma we face today, but in a different way. We're going to talk about two things that hinder us from entering the presence of God, from sensing his nearness. But since it is Advent, a season of waiting and hoping, 
you'll have to wait until the third and fourth points for that. So John, in his, gospel, in his, in his letter, 1 John, writes to us of what we'd been waiting for and of what the prophets foretold. If you read the storyline of the Bible and you read it as one continuous revelation of God culminating in the, in the invisible God becoming a visible man in the appearing of God in the world, not just coming to speak with two or three saints of old who were very special mediators between God and the people. They were only foreshadowings. We're talking about the appearing of God himself, the God who is terrifying and awesome. In Advent, what they had been waiting for, that Jeff pointed out was mysterious. See, they were waiting for Emmanuel. The prophets had foretold, if you read the storyline of the Old Testament, you'll find that there's an increasing sense of hope and increasing wonder and beauty and awesomeness and more and more promises of the nearness of God, even as the the kingdom of God on the earth seemed to be corrupt and crumbling more and more. So as things appeared to be getting worse and you had fewer and fewer good kings leading the people and more and more years of disobedience, more and more guilt being heaped up on the people, who were supposed to be God's people, you also had more and more promises of God coming close. If you were a Christian, if you were one of God's people at that time, you might have been thinking, oh no, we're doomed. This judgment will be worse than the last one. Nobody was expecting that the promises of Emmanuel, God with us for comfort, and the promises of of a king coming that would rule were one and the same. But then, like Paul so eloquently uh, speaks of in Ephesians, the, the two were made one, and the dividing wall was broken down, and the mystery hidden for long ages past was revealed. And when Christ was born, nobody saw it coming like that, except perhaps Anna and and uh, Zechariah and Mary and Joseph, but even they only had shadows, right? And Simeon in the temple. They only had a little idea. And so this little baby was born, the coming of the one we'd been waiting for. And they found out that he was both the terrifying and near king, come to comfort and come to solve the dilemma Looking back on the incarnation, John writes, that which was from the beginning, talking about the eternal God, the ancient of days. We should read that and not think, yeah, yeah, Jesus was eternal, he was there forever. We should read that and think, oh no. Like we should have this sense of fear and awe because he's talking about the ancient one, the one who is the judge of the world. And then he says, we've heard him. Remember what the people of God said at the holy mountain when Moses went up on the mountain and God gave them his holy commandments? They said, you talk to him, you go up to him. You know, as for us, we can't, we can't stand to hear him speak to us any longer. We're all going to die. 
And John writes, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Can you see the beginning of the unfolding of the ineffable, undescribable mercies of God by coming near in such a way that we would not be consumed for our sins? Remember Job's words? He was like the most righteous man on the planet. And and he said, oh, that there were somebody between us so that we could talk because God's too holy and my sins, which were unnamed, my sins are so great, I can't be in his presence. John continues, we've looked upon and touched him with our hands. They shook hands with him. He passed them bread at the table. Wonder at the nearness of this awesome God. This is the advent of Christ. This is what we're remembering the old saints looking forward to. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. So he names God the life. He doesn't name him the fearsome, terrible, fiery death with poisonous snakes and the earth swallowing you up. And if you get too close, or if you aren't dressed the right way to go into his presence, fire will come out from his tent and it'll consume you. And somebody else will have to pick up your charred ashes. He calls him the life. This is our God. This is a paradox. The dilemma remains. It's the same dilemma they experienced. And he solved it by becoming a man and becoming somehow one that the apostles could touch and shake hands, hug. He, he touched their feet. You know, he would send them on little errands to get groceries and things. They would eat together. They would walk and talk. They'd go to sleep in the same place together. I think of the words of David who had a wonderful understanding of the awesomeness and the nearness and tenderness of God when he said, he leads me beside quiet waters. He leads me to green pastures. He restores my soul. So the mystery under which people um, suffered, in a manner of speaking, and wondered and, and hoped and couldn't solve was how was God going to be near without crushing us by the weight of his presence? John continues, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that And here we see God's goal in all of this. So that you too may have fellowship with us, bringing a broken people of God together under one head, giving us genuine fellowship with each other, even though we're sinners. Everybody who's ever had a roommate or who's been married knows that in in close relationships where you live together or are married, you feel both the pain of being sinners in the same house or in the same room and having to do life together, and you also feel the joy of having fellowship. It's a, 
It's a togetherness that isn't complete. So what the saints of old looked forward to was God fixing and repairing the brokenness of the people of God. Continuing, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. These are the best things I have ever experienced. Fellowship with the Father and fellowship with his Son. These things are made possible in a new and better way because of the coming near of Christ. He continues, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the hope then was fellowship with God and fullness of joy. The other hope was fellowship with one another. So please, Raise your hands and call out some verses you can think of where Jesus says what he came to do. I came to what, Sydney? Destroy the works of the devil. Let's pause there. What was the first work of the devil? Rebellion. What was the first work of the devil on earth? His first work was to, uh, to reject God, to lie. Yeah, he lied. He facilitated the rebellion of uh, Adam and the casting out of Adam and Eve from the garden, right? The rebellion of Adam and the deception of Eve. And so they were separated from God's presence. Fellowship with God, broken. What was the next work of the devil? Jump ahead to chapter three, I think, or four. Murder, yeah. One man rising up against his own brother, smashing him, killing him. Fellowship with one another, broken. It was already broken in a way that Adam and Eve so acutely experienced. And ever since that garden and in the tragic events that followed, these works of the devil, there had been longing, hoping, waiting, and a lot of despair and a lot of discouragement. These were the things that the saints of old suffered from. And these are the things that tempt us still but we have a different hope and we have seen something and we have been near him in a way that has made things different than it was for the saints who came before us. Going back to what did Jesus say he came to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. Awesome. That's awesome. He came to undo the breaking between man and God. He came to undo the breaking between man and fellow man. He came, and when he came, he didn't say, that's it, all you sinners, get behind me, that's it, I'm wiping it clean again, I destroyed you once with water, I'm going to flood you all again, I'm sorry I made you. Nope, nope, he came, he said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. They knew exactly what those were. What else did he say he came to do? Greg. He said, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
and to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek and to save that which was lost. If even Job was lost, if even, if even David, another one of the more righteous men to have lived, one of those who experienced great nearness with God, if even he, you know, uh, felt the, the pain of separation from God. If, and the psalmist wrote things like, the heavens are made of bronze. You know, it's like the hardest metal ever made at the time, right? Like, my prayers aren't going through it. I can't, I can't even talk to him. There's like a metal wall above me, you know? If, if Aaron's own children were judged by the hand of God for their unworthy and uh, a presumptuous approaching of God in an improper way without wearing the right robes, without having been cleansed through the ritual as he prescribed, without having uh, everything dressed and prepared and repented of and, and walking in, you know, in a, in a fitting manner according to all those rules and regulations he gave to Moses for Aaron to follow. If the nearest people to God um, felt lost. Certainly all the rest of the people of God would have felt lost. And he said, not, you're lost, you know, come near. When he came, his message to us and his message today is not, you've, you've really run off away from me this time, you wicked sheep. His message to us now is, I've come to seek you and I've come to save you. All of you who are aware of your unrighteousness, I've come to call you to repentance. Not, I've handed you another paper invitation, so hurry up and repent. It's, I've come to call you, you who weren't calling out to me. So if we find ourselves in that place of being acutely aware of our unrighteousness again, and of how our unrighteousness is greater than other saints, so to speak, David and Moses, who couldn't enter the promised land, and Aaron and David and Job. And if, if our unrighteousness is probably much worse than theirs, let's be honest, his message to you today is, I've come to call you sinner to repentance. That is what I wake up to every morning. These are the things we think through in our quiet times. This is what makes my encounters with God special, tender, comforting, and what makes me very scared. But you can't divorce the awesomeness and the, the fearsomeness, the wildness of God, as C.S. Lewis puts it. He says he's not a tame lion. A wild lion is a fearsome beast. You can't divorce the, the wildness and the fearsomeness of God, the river of fire and the lightning from, from the humanity of God and the, the touchability of Jesus. If we had lived a couple thousand years ago, if we had lived in Jerusalem, we might have been there when he was handing out bread, when he, when he caused his disciples to, to have bread that was multiplied. We might have, we might have touched his hand and instead of being instantly destroyed like Aaron's sons, not God didn't even touch them. He sent fire out from himself, right? But that's not the nearness of God that we 
who have experienced the coming, the advent of Christ know. We know the nearness of God in his nearness to save and not to destroy, in his nearness to heal. So when I have my quiet time in the morning or through the day at work, I'm very aware of the, the awfulness of my sin, the, the deadliness of the judgment that would be against me, and simultaneously of the nearness of God and how, how touchable he is. It says, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with you. It's very mysterious to me that he didn't say, when you come to me in my name, there I am with you. And that is true. You don't need another mediator. All the, almost all the, the cults and false religions in the world have some other guy that has to go between you and God, but not us, not since our mediator has come. And of course he said, it's better that I go away because then I pour out my spirit and then all of you have me, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit himself with you day to day. Because he has gone away, now we can receive his invitation to come clean. And you can picture yourself when you're having these thoughts of doom and gloom, which you should, biblically. You can picture yourself, biblically, having the corresponding um, nature of God manifest, not as death to you, but as life as the man of life, as the person of God revealed as the one who lives and gives life. Picture yourself as the leper from the gospel towards whom Jesus stretched out his hand. Unlike everybody else who was pulling back their hand, Jesus stretched out his hand and in your leprosy, he daily touches you and daily your sins are cleansed. Think through that imagery in your quiet time, day to day. What else did Jesus say he came to do? Yeah. I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So there's no more ceremony of killing an animal. There's no more, you know, we don't, celebrate this. We don't have a requirement on pain of separation from Christ. Like, you know, if you didn't show up for the festivals, they had these festivals they had to go to. If you didn't show up for these festivals, what did the law say? You know, if you don't come, you're out, right? You can't not celebrate the Passover if you're able. You had to be of the right ethnicity, all these things. He abolished the dividing wall between us and God. He abolished the dividing wall between those who were born with Christian parents and those who weren't. Ephesians, those are blessed words. All of us, whether we knew Christ or whether we came from a home where Christ was railed against and rebelled against, or whether your parents handed down from faith to faith the blessed promises of God, we are now one. All of us, like sheep astray, gathered together. He came to seek and save us and to write on our hearts his commandments supernaturally. How does he do that? 
He does it when we come together in his presence, when we gather in his name, when we embrace one another, we are being embraced by God. When we show one another love, we are receiving the the steadfast love of the Lord that doesn't change even though our sins would have made a separation between us and God. There's one other thing Jesus said he came to do. What else? I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly and have it to the, fu- to, to the full, right? That is wonderful. So when you wake up and you feel unworthy and you feel faithless, and you probably are, know that the Lord's words to you are, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. First John, John writes, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the hope that the saints of old were waiting for was restored fellowship with God, real fellowship with one another, even though we have some trouble in our relationships, right? That's still present in part, but not like it was. Because with the Holy Spirit poured out on us, poured out into our hearts through faith, the love of God becomes manifest in a new and better way than it was for the saints of old. We have this great and glorious promise that the love of God for us and in us for one another has a transformative effect and is renewing us in the image of God. Let me read from um, a book called Paradise Restored, which you should all read. It's such a wonderful read. He quotes St. Athanasius in his book on the Incarnation. What then was God to do? What else could he possibly do being God but renew his image in mankind? So we were made in the image of God. The image was distorted. And then he renewed his image in us through Christ coming to be the perfect image of God and us being united with him. That's what happens in prayer. That's what happens in worship. It's a continuous unification with Christ and a joining to him that is renewed when we pray, when we seek him in his word, and he writes his his blessed and unbreakable commandments again on our hearts, again and again and again, so that we love his law, and we do it because we delight in his law, and we do it for him because we know him, and we've been assured of him, and we, we are aware supernaturally that we are with him and he with us. We corporately together. Going back, what then was God to do? What else could he possibly do being God but renew his image in mankind so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done? save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person, because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man after the image. 
In order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with death and corruption. Therefore, he assumed a human body in order that in it, death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. That's what happened at the incarnation, at the embodiment of God as a man. We have something better. The hope is partially fulfilled. We are on our way towards new and better things, and we're experiencing them now. If you read the storyline of the Old Testament, you will find that even as things grew dark and perhaps darker, or certainly they were repeated, horrible things happened and the people were very bad. The, the Israelites were, were very wicked over and over again, and it just stacked up. Even in the middle of that, the storyline of the scriptures is pointing towards greater hope and better things. And the, the prophets don't say, at Christ's second coming, everything will be better. It just says his coming. Well, that means both his comings. But they are talking about, in part, his first coming. Things are better now for us, and God is nearer to us in a way that we can daily experience in our quiet times and in our corporate worship. Life is better now than it was for the saints of old. And it will be better still. And he'll bring that about through us in our family life, which if, you've, if you have a family, you might be thinking, uh, is that really happening like it should be? Uh, yes, God is bringing that life about and he's revealing the fullness of joy and the fullness of life in your family life through you. You have an extraordinary responsibility to know these commandments that do not pass away. Not one of them. Now, the rituals were fulfilled by the, the fullness of Christ's sacrifice, right? We don't, we don't like not eat crayfish anymore. We don't not eat pork anymore. You know, that's, who, who's gonna say to God that what he's called clean is still unclean? You know, we don't have a separation between people who are born to Christian parents anymore, AKA Jews, and people who were converts uh, when they were already adults, AKA Gentiles. There's no dividing, that's, that's dumb, you know? although that was the reality before Christ. Now, or uh, even though, even though uh, the people of God were a mixed multitude, they still had these ideas that there was a division between the ethnic people of God and those who uh, didn't, didn't have the heritage passed on to them properly. That's why they kept all these genealogies, right? It was a self-righteousness thing, but now the righteousness is revealed in Christ. We can be in our one people of God, and the love of God is made manifest to us in a wonderful way, day by day, as the Spirit doesn't yell at us from a long ways away, get back here, as the Spirit comes near to us and calls us into his presence day by day. So if you're a brother or sister in Christ and you live with somebody else, let that be your tone of voice too. Let your words be like that. If you're a father or mother, let your words to your children, to your spouse, sound like that. That is 
one way that you are making manifest his coming. Craig said three things that Jesus said he came to do was to reveal the Father, to reveal his will, and to glorify the Father. And to do his will. Thank you. When it says in Hebrews 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, we now know and experience the will of God for us, which is a will for unification and for our reunification and not for us to be cast out and not for us to fail as Christians. It's because he came that you will succeed at being a Christian if you are in him. All those who Christ has called will successfully complete the will of God for their lives. So we talked about, uh, we said we would talk about two barriers that hinder us from entering the presence of God. One of them is found in the next uh, six verses of 1 John 1. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The saints of old knew that well, and they were terrified of that light at times. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hmm. Cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John repeats himself here so much because this is important, because you won't experience the life of God like you're supposed to if you don't confess your sins and say, I'm a sinner. If you don't live the practice of saying, I am a great and grievous sinner and I desperately need you to cleanse me. If you don't live out by that, I mean, if you don't say that to God or something like it, something that sounds a lot like that on a daily or often basis, then there's a barrier between you and God. That has to become your prayer life. You have to grow into a lifestyle of saying, there's nothing good that lives in me. Like I'm not a good person. You've got to believe that to be near God. He said, I haven't come to call the righteous. And we often feel like we've sort of reached this plateau and we're pretty good now. And we've got things down as far as being a Christian. If you're there, Repent, because there's something that's separating you from the experience of the life and the fullness of joy in God and something that's separating you from fellowship with each other. If you persist in not having a daily and routine prayer, prayer life, where you say to God, "Um, I've done this wrong, and I've done this wrong, and I've done this wrong, and don't make up little things like I had a beer or, you know, I wasn't dressed well. That's dumb. That's man's religion, Right? Confess your transgression of the commandments of God. Let your daily and routine prayer life be, God, 
I have idolized and loved more than you many other things, maybe even myself, right? Save me. God, I have coveted another man's goods. I've, I've lusted. I've committed adultery in my heart. That has to be your daily prayer life. If it's not, then you're not going to experience the fellowship with one another that's promised and described here. That becomes a barrier to you. That has to be the Christian's routine prayer life. So that's kind of discouraging. Uh, it's pretty humiliating when you pray like that. We also have to confess our sins to one another. That probably shouldn't be the person you have a crush on. Uh, definitely shouldn't be. You should confess your sins to somebody who's endorsed in your local church as a, as a leader, probably. Um, occasionally your spouse, but you, you also have to be a little bit careful with that. You don't want to confess certain sins to your spouse. You should maybe go to your pastor first, right? Um, although there is a time for all of that. The daily discipline of confessing our sins to God and to one another is a means by which we enter his presence and experience the joy of God and the fellowship with one another promised here. If we, do, if we say we have not sinned, then God, who has said, you've broken my covenant, becomes like a liar to us. And if you call God a liar, what fellowship do you have with him? Not much. So this discipline must be part of your daily routine. The last barrier I'd like to touch on is not in our text. It's, uh, if you will remember with me, Elijah's experience in his battle with the uh, prophets of Baal. There was this extraordinary encounter with God and fire fell from heaven and, and false worship was partly wiped out from the land. And Elijah had been vindicated in his hope and waiting for and longing for God to show himself, and he did. And then, you know, he becomes terrified of Queen Jezebel. Do you all, rem do you all remember this? Raise your hand if you remember it. God, almost everybody. Great, great. So, so then he runs for his life right after this wonderful encounter with God and victory and nearness of God with his people and vindication of God's law. So he runs for his life, and he runs and runs and runs, and he becomes totally exhausted. And then what does he say? Somebody. Sydney. I'm very zealous for the Lord, therefore let me die. He just said, I want to die. Why? He was nearer to God than any of us have ever been in terms of, like, none of us have seen the fire of God fall from heaven. Like, that's really cool. That's a wonderful manifestation of his nearness, right? We haven't seen that. And here's this guy, he's, he's this holy man of God, and right after that, he's saying, just, just kill me now. Just take me now. I'm no better than my ancestors, right? Why? He had become very fatigued. He'd become so overly fatigued that he was physically and emotionally exhausted. 
when you're physically and emotionally exhausted, you, that is the time to press through and have a quiet time. That's the time to wake up and come to church anyway, right? And fellowship with, with your brothers and sisters and fellowship with the Son of God in worship as he comes and stands among us. However, you can't be fatigued all the time. I just spent the last month being overly fatigued all the time and I suffered from it spiritually. And I finally made up my mind, all right, nothing else matters, 8.30, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and, and I had the most wonderful renewal of my sense of the presence of God in my quiet times because I was physically and emotionally recharged and more able to meet with God. So there are two things that continue to separate us from God that we've talked about today. Letting the habits of your life be disorganized or letting yourself get fatigued and stay fatigued without catching up and not having a daily prayer life that looks like, oh God, save me, I've broken, I'm aware that you, you're convicting me of this sin and that sin and that sin. I've done it, I did it, I know it, please save me. Please deliver me. As you grow in those two disciplines of having, of taking care of your body and of cleansing, of bringing to light the darkness in your soul, and it is there, right? It'll be there tomorrow morning, so you have to confess it again. When you walk in those disciplines, you facilitate wonderful experiences with God, whereby when you hear his voice, you aren't found snoring, whereby when you hear his voice calling you and saying, I've come to seek you, lost sheep. Come, come worship me this morning. And this should be happening every morning, right? You won't have the excuse, I don't, I don't need you, because you're walking in darkness. So this morning, as we continue our celebration of the Advent in Christ, let us draw careful attention to ourselves and meditate on the possibility that there is a barrier that has become a habit that is separating you from the life of God. But the present reality is that Almighty God came down from heaven and tore the veil in the temple there's now no longer a separation between you and God in the, in the totalizing sense. He is here to help you. He's here to sing with joy over you. He's here to fellowship with you. He's here to cause restored fellowship between you and those in your life with whom you have broken relationships. He's here to give you a fullness of joy. This is what the advent and the coming of Christ means. Let's pray. Father, we are often going astray as our ancestors did. We're deeply grateful to you that you have come near and that your shepherd's staff is long enough to draw us from the side of every cliff on which we're hanging as we have fled from you into darkness. It's true of us that we have loved darkness rather than light and that nothing good dwells in us. So Lord, be for us light. Cause us to be a city of light. 
like a lampstand set on a hill. Surely only you can do this. All of our hope is in you. We do not hope in our ability to follow you or be faithful or be better Christians. We hope in you to be Christ and to be Christ who will join us to you. And in your victory and in your success, we find success. We look to you to come near us, to come near to us, and so live in us that we share in your life in a way that we start living more and have your peace, your patience, your self-control, your joy, your love. And so we pray that you would renew us in your steadfast love for you and in your steadfast love for us. Renew us in our fellowship with one another and cause there to be no barrier between us and you. In Jesus' mighty name, who's able to sanctify his church and bring us all together under himself that we might be one body, even one spotless bride presented to the Father in eternal marriage and union forever. To him we pray and for his glory and to you we hope, amen.